God, thank you so much for this incredible day you've given to us. God, thank you for the opportunity that we can be here together and just worship you. We pray, dear God, that everything we say, everything we do, the thoughts that we have, how we interact with each other, Lord, this morning would worship you, that we would honor you. Pray that we would minister to one another, that we would care for one another, that we would love one another this morning. If we see anyone who looks discouraged or needs prayer, that we would come around them, Lord God, and just pray for them, encourage them, love them, support them, whatever they need. We are the body of Christ. And so we come together to worship you and to love each other. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray it. Amen. Our sermon, I have a couple of quick quick updates here. First, uh, if you're in high school or junior high, um, next week David's going to be talking about uh, are there errors in the Bible? And you don't have to go because I'll just tell you, unless you wrote something in it that's wrong, no. Um, so you can, no, I'm just kidding. Um, next week, that's what he's going to be talking about. If you are in high school or in junior high, you definitely want to be a part of that. Uh, love apologetics. Your friends will be asking you these kinds of questions, so you need to know the answer. A couple other quick things. If you would, take out your family news bulletin. Inside there, there's the walk for water. Make sure you read that. We got the men's retreat going on. If you're a man, uh, you need to be at the men's retreat. If you're a man, you know what I'm saying, too. Okay. Um, I don't know what I'm saying, so I hope you do. Um, yeah, so be there at the men's retreat, uh, October 19th and 20th. And then start thinking about the harvest party, the harvest festival. Every year this thing's amazing, and this year it's even better. So everyone, every age is invited. Make sure you invite your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers. It's just a blast. We have a lot of stuff going on. The harvest party starting, uh, it's on October the 10th from 6 to 8. So make sure that you uh, take the time to mark all those things down in your calendar. One last thing. It's the fifth Sunday. Um, we have been, our, our staff has been growing. Our activities and events and Bible studies and everything else have been growing. And with new staff comes a little bit more um, financial need because there's a lot of things that they can use to be more effective in their ministry. And uh, we are on a tight budget. So I just want to encourage you this morning to remember your giving. There is envelopes in your seat right in front of you. So dig deep, brothers. <laughs> I'll do that kind of stuff if I need to. But if you would, we don't pass around the offering plate here. Um, but I want to encourage you to maybe give a little bit extra because I want to make sure that the staff... Uh, has everything they need to do the job that uh, God has called them to do. And they are doing an amazing job. We have the most incredible staff of people, my friends. You can be so proud of them. From the children's ministry people, the youth ministry staff, the adult staff, they work so hard and do such an amazing job. And I'm not kidding you. It is, it is such a joy to be a pastor in this church and to have this, the, the type of staff that we have uh, I was just saying around me, I absolutely love them and they're doing an incredible job. So I want to make sure as the body of Christ, we're supporting uh, the things that they, they need, not just want, the things that they need to be uh, more effective in their ministry. So please consider that this morning. Um, have you ever noticed that most people are not very good at conflict resolution? You ever noticed that? No, maybe it's just me. They're, they're not very good at conflict resolution. Unlike Paul, who, who seems to really have no problem at all with conflict and dealing with conflict or, or dealing with other problems that come up in his life. In Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16, it says this, When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. I'm getting a little ring on this. 
He was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came to James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Unlike Paul, some people are not very good at all at handling conflict. They avoid it like the plague. They avoid it at all costs. I mean, think about it. How long have Uncle John and, and Aunt Jane been coming to your house for the holidays and causing problems? They are so rude every single year. They're rude to everyone around them. They create tension and no one says a word. No one says a word because most people want to avoid conflict. They want to avoid confrontation. It's just part of human nature sometimes in in, in most people. Let me share a story uh, that I found as I was going through this sermon. Two men who lived in a small village got into a terrible, a, a terrible dispute and couldn't find a way to resolve it. So they decided to talk to the village elder. The first man went to the elder's home and told his version of what happened. When he finished, the elder said, you are absolutely right. The next night, the second man called on the elder and told his side of the story. And the elder responded, you are absolutely right. Afterward, the village elder's wife scolded her husband. Those men told you two different stories, and you told them that they were absolutely right. That's impossible. That's impossible. They both can't be absolutely right. And so the village elder turned to his wife and said, You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. People do not like to deal with conflict. They want to avoid it. They don't, they don't want it as a part of their lives. It's just something, you know, I think, I think in an early age we, we all kind of, we see it happening and we know it kind of, conflict seems to get us in trouble. You know, we're always the ones getting into trouble or it makes me uncomfortable or whatever. But we try to avoid it. We're continuing our series, What Would Jesus Tweet? And this morning I want to talk about the growing tendency to use social media to resolve conflict the growing tendency within the church or outside of the church to use social media to resolve conflict. The problem that I see is that people who avoid direct confrontation, the people who really don't like direct confrontation, don't seem to have a problem with indirect confrontation. You know, people, I mean, just forget, forget online, some people, you know, you know they're just... They don't mind, they don't want to say it to a person's face like Paul said to Peter, but they don't have a problem with being passive aggressive or saying it behind someone's back or whatever the case may be. And and I think the reality is this new online world offers great cover and opportunity to do just that, to be indirect in our confrontation. 
It, it, it is a great way. It has created a wonderful way for people to kind of to cover up. And it's a great opportunity. It creates a great opportunity for us to be indirect in our conflict resolution. So let me share some ways that we misuse social media in our conflict resolution. Some of the ways, I'm going to give you three ways that we misuse. We misuse it. Number one, we leak it out. We leak it out. We don't, we don't go directly face-to-face with the person. We, it just it kind of, it we leak it, we let it leak out. Years ago, a few years ago, I had three people call me in one day and say, do you think so-and-so is, is upset with me? Do you, think they're, do you think they're mad at me? You think they're angry with me? And I, and I said to the first person, why would, you, why would you think that they're angry with you? They said, well, have you read their post? And I said, no, I haven't read their post. So I got online and read their post. And it, he said something like, um, you know, pray for me or, uh, or you know, tomorrow's going to be a tough day or something because I, I have to confront a friend or I have to confront someone. And here's what happens when, when, when people do that. You've got 200 or 500 or 1,000 friends wondering, what, is it me? Three of them called me, so there's a whole bunch more wondering, is it me? You know, is it me? And then what's the second thing they wonder after, after the day goes by? What, what are you wondering if, if it wasn't you? What are you wondering? Who was it? Right. So first, is it me? And then who was it? Now you're in the conversation. You're in a conversation you should not be in because someone kind of leaked it out there. And we do that not just on Facebook or through other social media sites or tweeting or whatever else. We do that in, 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 in everyday life in different ways as well. But I'm just talking about how we, le- how we leak it out by saying something like that. Here's the issue. When you leak it out, you cause tension. You're creating tension and doing the opposite of what Matthew 18 teaches us to do as believers in Christ. People all the time say, how do you handle conflict? It's, the Bible is very clear on how we handle conflict. There's a lot more passages, but Matthew 18 is kind of a foundation for us. In Matthew 18:15 through 17, it says this, If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. So you start out one-on-one, not leaking it out to a whole bunch of other people, one-on-one. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he does not listen, take, two or, or take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. There's the process. Most of the time, you don't get down to the Treat him like a pagan or a tax collector. Because when you bring other people who are godly people, a small group of people together, first one-on-one, then one or two other very godly, wise, discerning people with you, not you know, two of your biggest gossipy friends, but two wise, godly people. Pick an elder, pick a pastor, pick someone that you know, your Bible study leader, pick a friend that you know can keep a confidence, and go and sit down with that person quietly and talk it through. I tell people all the time, if you're struggling in your marriage, don't talk about it with a lot of other people because it's so difficult once you, once you get that resolution, once you resolve the conflict, now you have to go back and talk to all these other people that you shared with. And sometimes the more people you tell, the more difficult it is to bring about reconciliation in a relationship, whether it's a marriage or a friendship, because so much was said. 
So many things were said during that period of time that you have to collect all those things back. And my friends, and sometimes you can't collect all of your words. They're still out there and they're still causing trouble. So make sure that you're not broadcasting it. Instead of, instead of creating tension, we need to follow Matthew 18. And Matthew 18 doesn't say broadcast it to the world. Tell everybody else what's going on around you. Posting a conflict creates tension and does the opposite of what Matthew 18 is teaching us to do. Number two, we jump the gun. We jump the gun. We write before we've had direct contact with the other person. We write, we just, we start, you know, we shoot something off before we've had direct contact with the other person. What I mean is don't fire off an email before you've, you've been able to sit down with the person that you feel has offended you. Don't get, don't get, don't let your emotions get all charged up. And before you actually go face to face with someone asking questions and sharing what's on your heart, don't fire off an email. How many times, think about it, how many times in your life have you, have you sat down and said something to someone or, or, or by emotions kind of letting them out, you've had to go back and eat your words? How many times have you said something in emotion to someone or you've just, and you had to go back and just swallow your own words? We do that all the time. We, maybe, maybe it's with your, with your kids and you say, well, I can't believe you did this, and I, or your husband or your wife, I can't believe you did that, or our best friend. Why would you? How could you? And they just stand there and listen to you. And then about 15 minutes later, they say, I wasn't even there. How could you talk to someone? I never, I was, in, I was in Alaska. I wasn't even, I, didn't, I never talked to anyone. You're like, oh, you ever remember, you ever remember when you're, you guys are a little older, the Saturday Night Live woman, I can't remember what her name was, and she'd go rambling on, then she'd say, never mind. Remember? Remember? She was always like running off at the mouth and saying, well, never mind. They correct her. And that's what we had to say. Well, never mind. I remember when I was, in, uh, I was in high school, and I was sitting there minding my own business, as I usually try to do, um, and all of a sudden, someone took a spit water or something and threw it and stuck in the blackboard, and then the guy turns around and he goes, Greer, detention! And I'm like, unless you have eyes in the back of your head, how can you accuse me? I didn't do it. I said, I didn't do it. I don't want to hear another word. Detention. Of course, the people who did it are all snickering and having a great time because it got me in trouble. So I went to the, person, uh, the teacher after the class and I said, hey, I didn't do it. I mean, I, I looked him right in the face. I said, I did not whip that pit ball you know, at you. I didn't do it. And he, this is what he said to me. He said, well, consider this punishment for a time that you did something and you didn't get caught for it. I was like, I was like, dude, that's not going to work for me. Okay, I don't like that idea. I don't like that idea. People don't like it when they're accused of something they did not do. So before you accuse someone of something that they may not have done, before you fire off the email and have to eat all of your words, make sure you connect with the person who you felt has offended you. And avoid jumping, jumping the gun. The third is the hit and run. How many times in your life has someone emailed you? Maybe just once, maybe never, and you're very fortunate. How many times have some, has someone emailed you and they've basically taken the time to state a list of grievances? It's like a scroll, you know what I mean? That, you know, the 27,000 things that I don't like about you. Because what happens is they get all emotional. Some people will not confront at all until they're emotionally charged and then they get behind their computer and bang, 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 number one one, number two, number three, number 87. You know what I mean? All the list of grievances that they don't like about you. Maybe it's happened to you. A relative has done it. A friend has done it. Uh, you know, someone at work has done it. They listed all these things out. 
And then when you go and sit down, when you call them or you want to sit down with them and say, I'd like to, you want to respond? And I don't mean respond like I'm going to respond. I mean just respond to what they were saying, you know. Number four, you know, this is, you know, I never even heard of this word. How can I be it? Um, You know, you, you want to respond to them or you want to reconcile. They don't want to get together. They don't want to talk about it. Well, I don't want to talk about it. You don't want to talk about it. You just laid out a scroll. You talked about it last night. You don't want to talk about it. They don't want to talk about it. What that does to the other person is that, number one, it leaves them empty. And that's the best feeling they have. When you, when you hit and run like that, it leaves the other person empty or, worse, very, very angry. Because as they read through that list, there's nothing they can do to sit down with you and say, listen, I didn't mean that. When, I, when we were talking about, that's completely out of context. And I never said that to someone, or I never did that. I never touched to whatever, whatever it could be. You never get a chance to explain yourself, and that causes an emptiness inside when it comes to relationship and also a really deep anger. The hit-and-run method, the, the, you know, the, the idea of spe- you know, leaking it out or jumping the gun, usually comes from a bitter heart that springs from unresolved conflict. The, the foundation is an unresolved conflict between you and your friend. You may really care about them, but there's some unresolved conflict. And then all of a sudden, something happens, and you apply, you, you know, you just jump the gun there, and then you start applying all these negative motives to it, and you create a bitter feeling. And that bitterness then is gener- generates this, this, this lashing out. That's what happens. It's a bitter heart because of unresolved conflict that you have in your relationships. That's why Paul was correct in confronting Peter, in talking to him about this. We need to be careful what we communicate when we get behind that computer. We need to be careful that we walk through a biblical thought process, not a jump the gun, you know what I mean? Not, not a hit and run Kind of, kind of presentation when it comes to conflict resolution. It doesn't work. Hebrews 12, 14, and 15 says, Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Running from confrontation only teaches you how to avoid life. And how to have mediocre relationships at best. When you run from confrontation, it teaches you how to avoid life itself. Because life is going to be filled with confrontation. I don't, no one looks for it. It just comes to us and it's how we handle it. But if we don't handle it correctly, what we're doing is we're teaching, we're teaching ourselves basically and our children and people around us how to avoid life. And we're settling for mediocre relationships At best, the only way that we can learn to solve or, or, you know, or overcome a conflict or deal with conflict or resolve conflict, the only way that we can learn to resolve conflict is to resolve conflict. The only way you can learn how to resolve a conflict in your relationship is to resolve conflicts when they come up. You need to, it's practice. 
And I'm not saying it's fun practice. I'm not saying, hey, look for opportunities. But what I'm saying is the only way for you to grow and become more mature in your relationships with others when it comes to resolving conflict is to resolve conflict. And then you realize, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Next time, I'm going to come at this. I came at it. It was too emotional. I got a little too aggressive. Even though I think I was right, I should have. Next time I will. Or this person didn't respond very well. That taught me that they weren't really talking about this. They had another subject that they... That it, where that really took root, and that's the reason that we're having this conflict. You learn all of those little idios, little, little, little tiny uh, things that go on in relationships, but you have to take the time to resolve the conflict so you learn how to resolve a conflict. Now, what I'd like to share is two main reasons why, why people use these tactics to avoid conflict. Why do, why, do we, why do we do these three things? Well, n- number one, and the biggest reason is fear. It's fear. We are afraid. I mean, this was really, if you think about it, let me go back to the passage in Galatians. Look at verse 12. It says, Paul says this, Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with Gentiles. But then they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Peter's downfall... Peter's struggle was that he, he, he had a spirit of fear in him. He was afraid. But the question I have when I was, as I was reading through this, what would cause him, what would cause, think about it, what would cause Peter, Peter was a pretty tough guy, what would cause Peter to be afraid and to react this way? Well, it could have been that he was concerned about how, those, how that group of people, the Jews that were coming in, how they would have felt about him, that maybe they, didn't, they would have looked down on him. Maybe he would have lost some of his influence. They were going to think less of him. It is, an, it is a very powerful thing. Our concern for, for what people think, our concern for how, how people feel about us is a very powerful thing. We don't like people thinking negative thoughts. We don't, we don't like being looked at in a negative light. It is very powerful. The, feel of, the fear of what others might think is a powerful influence in our lives. But Peter, I think what happens sometimes, even if you're a, you're a, you're, you're a spiritual giant, you get lost sometimes in, in your own humanness. And that, that classic fear of man begun, begins to, to seep into your life. Peter had forgotten his Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it tells us, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. To whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 27.1. He had forgotten about that. In, in 2 Timothy 1.6, it says, Therefore, I, I remind you, remind you, we have to be reminded to stir up the gifts of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power of love and of sound mind. We need to be careful. We need to be aware at all times how the influence of other people can have an impact in our lives. Our fear of what other people may think influences how we behave and how we react toward other people. I mean, you think about Peter, but think about yourself. Haven't you ever had a friend, maybe when you were younger, who you liked them, but every, you know, your friends, other friends were like, man, that person's a nerd. They're so geeky. They're, they're, they're such a this or whatever. How can you hang around with them? And you said things like, well, 
um, you know, I feel bad for him, or I don't really like him. I just feel like, you know, my mom told me I had to be his friend because he's friends. You know, you have all these excuses because your friends are saying, you're hanging around with that person? Well, instead of saying, yeah, I, yeah, I am. I, they're, they're, they're good. He's a good guy, man. Why are, you, why are you picking on him? Why are you bothering him? He's a good guy. Instead of standing up for yourself, you don't want them to think you're a nerd. You don't want them to think you're... And that's it's part of what Peter was probably going through. I don't want to lose influence. I don't want people to think poorly of me. I'm not judging his motives here. All I'm saying is that's probably what was going... Some of what was going through his mind. Now, the second, the second reason we use those tactics to avoid conflict is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Now, before I get into this, let me just say, people love to call Christians hypocrites. But let me give you a couple of thoughts here before we you know, get into the depth of this. Number one, if someone got saved this morning and walked out of here and didn't act exactly like Jesus, okay, it doesn't make them a hypocrite. It makes them immature spiritually. If someone's been a Christian for five years in this church and they haven't been completely conformed to the image of Jesus Christ and so they make some mistakes, it doesn't make them a hypocrite. It makes them a person growing in their relationship with Christ. Someone like me, who's been a Christian since 1980, if I behave in a way that, um, that causes other people to stumble or just uh, for some reason I just go off the deep end and do something or I behave in a certain way, you know what? I could be accused of being a hypocrite. I know better. I'm spiritually mature. And so, so hypocrisy can, ha- can play a, a major role in a person's life and how other people perceive you. Let me read verse 13. It says this, The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. So Barnabas, he was a pretty strong guy, younger but strong. He was led astray by those who he looked up to and their hypocrisy. It's a big deal. Peter, well, here's what happened. Peter was pretending... He was basically pretending that he didn't associate with the non-law-keeping um, uh, Gentile believers when the, when, the, when the Jews would come and visit and they'd be a part of his life. He pretended he wasn't kind of like associated with them. Now, how do you think that made the non-law-keeping Gentile believers feel when these people came to town and Peter responded this way? He acted this way. Imagine the impact that this kind of hypocrisy had on their lives being so young in the faith. See, if you think about it, one of the greatest tools of Satan is our hypocrisy, especially for older Christians. That's one of the greatest tools of Satan is our hypocrisy, how we act when we're amongst other people. And you know, for older, I'm going to talk to the older Christians, just the older Christians here, all right? We need to be careful. You can't just go around saying, that's their problem, it doesn't matter. I've talked about this before, I'm going to talk about it again. You have to be concerned about the younger believers and those who don't know Christ in your behavior. You cannot go out and just do what you feel like doing. Even though it may have no negative spiritual effect on your life because you're strong enough to withstand whatever it is, other people look at that and say, well, I thought you were a believer, I thought you were a Christian. You have to think about how other people perceive your behavior especially if it's sinful behavior. We need to live up to what we already know because it has a profound impact on the lives of younger believers and people who don't know Jesus Christ. 
And Satan uses as a perfect tool. How many times have you heard on television or any place else, well, you see how so-and-so behaved. He said he was the leader of this kind of whatever, and look what he did with this person. He went off and slept around, and he did this, and I caught him doing that, whatever else. Satan uses the perfect tool for Satan. It's our hypocrisy. And what makes this so hypocritical is the fact that Peter clearly was acting in a way contrary to his beliefs. He didn't go along with the beliefs of the Judaizers. He, wasn't, he didn't agree with them. He was concerned about what they were going to think of him. He did not theologically agree with their position, but he went along. He kind of acted that way because he was concerned about what they were going to think of him. Imagine the power of that in our lives, what other people think. They're all talking about something at work, and your, 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 your best bet for most people is just to keep your mouth shut because you're afraid that if you step out and say, well, I don't really agree with that. I, I, I think that's wrong. Bam, what are they going to think of you? And so you just cower. You step back. You don't say anything. It is a powerful influence in our lives. How often, my friends, do we go along with just in the world in general or online with something that someone has said because, because we, don't want, we, don't, we don't want them to think poorly of us or we're afraid of what they're going to say about us if we don't go along. I mean, think about this. How, how often do we do things online that are in direct opposition to the word of God? What we, what we write, how we write it, what we choose to write, what we choose to watch, what we choose to listen to. It's in direct opposition to the word of God, but we choose to do those things. So before we kind of throw, you know, poor Peter, like a baby out with the bathwater, we need to realize that his example kind of brings it home to us. How often do we directly go in what, is, what the Bible opposes when we're online? You know, one of the best things you might want to do to help yourself out with that? Because what we do is we get behind that computer and, we, and somehow we check God in a box and we put our Bible in, 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 in some place we can't see it. What we need to do and we behave in a different way. I, I, think, I think that the, uh, the um, Internet is one of the greatest tools of Satan to create hypocrisy in the Christian world. It really is. And we need to be careful. We need to be careful. One, one thing I think that you can do is maybe make, make your, your screensaver, um, the Bible opened up to a specific verse and highlighted or something. You know, some, some verse that kind of, when you go on that computer, it's in your face. It's the first thing you see. That might be helpful because it's, you know, I stand up here and, and say all these things, but I'm trying to give you ways to help you out of. So maybe, maybe the Bible becomes your screensaver, like open, an open Bible with a verse that is pulled out that pretty much says, hey, be careful as you, as you enter into, you know, whatever you're going to do. The Bible is going to challenge you with that. So we've got to be, we be really careful as we, uh, as we live our lives and we get behind that computer. We're still followers of Jesus Christ. Okay, with the remainder of our time, what I want to do is use this Galatians passage to talk about the right way to resolve conflict. What is the right way to resolve conflict? Well, first, when it comes to resolving conflict, you need to make sure that you are loving. You need to be loving. You say, well, that's pretty simple. Yeah, pretty simple. But many times when it comes to conflict resolution, we're not loving. 
That kind of goes out the window because what happens? Our emotions take over. Don't allow your emotions to take over. Step back. Think of Philippians chapter 2. Think of which basically says, think of the other person before you think of yourself. Think of the other person better than yourself. You know, consider their interests and what's going on in their lives. So what we need to do is not allow our emotions to dictate our, our response. We need to allow the word of God to dictate our response. And the word of God says we need to be loving. In verse 11, it says, when Peter came to Antioch, he opposed him to his face. I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. So many people fear confrontation. Listen, but without confrontation, wounds fester and relationships deteriorate. I'm, and you know I'm right. Without some confrontation in a relationship over a period of time, time wounds fester and relationships, they deteriorate. Some people also think that confrontation is mean. Mean. But what is meaner, my friends, to have a difficult conversation with someone or to end up hating them and not wanting to be around them? Long term, what is meaner, if we can use the word mean? See, we live in a culture where everything's politically correct and sitting down with someone, maybe confronting them and telling them that they're wrong or their behavior has hurt someone else or that whatever the case may be, that's mean. That's not mean. What's mean is talking behind someone's back. What's mean is hating someone. What's mean is allowing a a root of bitterness to to grow in your life and have your life destroyed because you can't speak that out. That's what's mean, not wanting to be around a person or making them uncomfortable in every social situation you find them in because you haven't sat down and had a conversation where you allow them to kind of speak their mind and say, hey, I didn't mean to do that, or maybe they want to repent, but you don't give them that opportunity because you never say anything. I say the latter is meaner. It's meaner. And Proverbs 27, 5 and 6 says it really well. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. How many of us, I'm 50, okay, and I'm going to tell you right now, I can't stand this any longer. I would so much rather have people come up to me and say, I would like to sit down and talk to you about something. You have offended me. Come right to my face. Even, even if they don't do it correctly, even if they don't, if I could say, well, you should have done this a little better, and boy, you kind of came off that way, which I won't do. But even if they do that, I still feel better because the person is coming directly to you and wanting to resolve a conflict other than yada, 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 behind your back, gossiping, telling 15 other people. You know what I'm saying? We think the person who comes and confronts us is mean. But who is truly the mean one? Who is truly the immature one? Who is truly the one causing the most difficulty long-term and short-term? It's a person who doesn't say anything and tells everyone else and talks about you behind your back. You should rejoice if you have people in your life who will tell you the truth to your face in a loving way. You should rejoice. You should rejoice. Because those are the types of people that you can trust, that you can count on. If someone loves me enough to have a difficult conversation, I should be mature enough to listen. I should be mature enough to listen. Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 31 says this, He who listens to a life-giving rebuke will be at home among the wise. Paul in love, went to Peter's face 
and shared what was on his heart in a way that was appropriate. That is loving. Didn't, didn't go around and tell all the other people in the church. He went to his face and talked to him about it. That is the loving thing to do. Second, we need, when, you, when you need to confront someone, you need to be truthful. You need to be truthful. Listen to verses 15 and 16. We who are Jews by birth and, can, and, and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Listen, to, you, you say, what does that have to do with anything? Peter, the way he handled this, Paul went to Peter and reminded Peter of what he all, the truth that he already knows. What a, what a great thing to do. Paul goes to Peter and reminds Peter of what Peter already agrees with and already knows. What a great way to deal with someone. Someone does something as a Christian, and you, you know that it's not right. And you come to them in love, and you, and you, you, you lay out, not a holier than thou. Not, I'm not talking that. I'm talking in love. You lay out the truth of that person and say, you know, when we were in the locker room and everybody was cutting up and everything, you told that that joke was really gross, okay? It was demeaning. It was really, really gross. And the Bible says, let the, you know, we, no coarse joking could come out of our mouths you know, unwholesome talk or coarse joking, and you just lay that out to the person. Maybe they never read that. Maybe they never really saw that that clearly. And you tell them, well, here's what it says. You know, let not be any coarse joking. Or, and the person says, oh, man, when I was a baby Christian, I loved the Rangers, the New York Rangers hockey team. My favorite player was Nick Fatiu. Nick Fatiu scored one goal a year if he was lucky, okay, because he was a golden, he was a golden glove boxer on skates. And every time there was a problem, they'd send Nick Fatio on the ice and they'd get into a fight. And I'm, before I was a believer, I, that was the greatest thing in the world. Nick Fatio, oh man, I love Nick. I don't care how many goals you scored. He's my favorite player. Then Proverbs says, don't hold up a brawler as your example. I read that. Nick wasn't my favorite player anymore. Honestly, I didn't know that's what the Bible said. But once, someone, once it was pointed out, which I was reading Proverbs, and he wasn't my favorite player. We need to be able to, that's what Paul did to Peter. He lovingly communicated to him the truth that Peter already knew. He already knew. So before we, before we jump into a confrontation, make sure our conversation has a biblical base, is, has a scriptural base. Not just, don't just use your feelings or your opinion or your perspective. That's what we do. We emotionally go into confrontation with how we feel and our opinion and our perspective on the whole matter. There's, and, and don't get me wrong. Your, opinion, your feelings really do matter. You're, they really do matter. And that's why you're going to go and share your feelings with that person. But do it in such a way that you bring scripture, that there's, a, there's biblical wisdom in your presentation. Remember what it says in 2 Peter 3.16? It says this, All scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. All scripture is God-breathed and useful. Look at the words. Teaching, rebuking, correcting. And training, that's what they're used for. It's, there's nothing wrong with us as believers in Jesus Christ going one-on-one with each other and pointing something out in a loving way, speaking the truth in love, because the Bible basically says that's what Scripture is, that's what Scripture should be used for. 
to help us grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. But be careful not to go, man, I've got to figure out, that person is completely wrong. I'm going to find something in Hosea that says so. You know what I mean? Don't pull things out of context to back up your point. And when you do have the Bible on your side, if you will, that you're correct, you can still present it in a loving and graceful way. Make sure you don't come in with a hammer. Make sure you're not coming in to pound the person with the truth of God's word and to point out how miserable they are and how now you're going to straighten them out. Remember, the goal is unity. The goal is reconciliation, to bring about unity. Scripture is sharp as a double-edged sword, and I have seen some people wield it like a surgeon to bring healing. And I've seen other people who know the word of God better than you do wield it like a butcher and cause spiritual pain. That's what happens. Some of you have been spiritually abused in past situations with someone who wields the word of God like a butcher. Not in love, not in truth. Their motives, all of that are completely off. We both know what we're, you all know what I'm talking about here. When we go to speak the word of God and truth to people, we wield the word of God like a surgeon to bring about healing. To bring about change and healing in someone's life and reconciliation and unity. Not like a butcher to spiritually abuse people with all the knowledge that we have. Last, third, when you need to confront someone, try to, like I just said, bring about reconciliation. When you need to have that confrontation, your number one goal in life is not, I, now I'm vindicated, now I've spoken my peace. no. It is to bring about reconciliation, to tighten that relationship. Listen to 2 Peter. Listen to what this says. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. I love this. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote with you, you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do this other scriptures to their own destruction. At the end, here's, don't, don't miss this, at the end of Peter's life, Peter doesn't see Paul as a rival. He sees him as a dear brother. As a dear brother, he recognizes his apostleship, and he points out that Paul's letters are inspired by God. People say, well, how did they pick the books of the Bible? That's one of the reasons. That's one of the ways right there. Peter said that Paul's letters were inspired by God. They were dear brothers at the very end. Even though P Paul went to Peter, you'd think if Paul went to Peter face to face, they didn't like each other anymore. Yeah, that's how it works around, you know, in, in the world today. They don't like, someone confronts someone, they don't like each other anymore. That is not why we confront people. We confront to bring about reconciliation that I can say, my dear brother, 25 years later, it's my dear brother. Listen to this man. He knows what he's talking about. He's a dear brother. God speaks through him. He's helped me so much in my life, and I have helped to point out things in his life, and I'm sure that's happened. I'm not saying I don't know, but as human beings, I'm sure there were times that they went back and forth and pointed out things in each other's lives that helped them become more like Jesus Christ. Confrontation in love and truth, in a spirit of humility and prayer, does not bring about division. It brings about unity. It brings about unity. 
And that's what we're all striving for, to be one in Christ, to, be, to love each other, to be reconciled to each other, to forgive each other, to support each other, to help each other grow in our relationship with Christ. That's why we point these things out. So we don't give Satan a foothold. We know that he wants to destroy the church. We know he wants to destroy your family. We know he wants to destroy all your friendships. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, don't give Satan the opportunity don't we know he schemes? We know he's smarter than we are. Don't give him an opportunity to get a wedge in there and destroy your lives because then you're going to focus on all the things that don't matter instead of the things that do matter. Listen, if you try one, one little side note, if you tried to reconcile a relationship and it hasn't worked, don't give up. And I'm not talking about staying in, in, in relationships that are abusive. I want to make that really clear. But if you try to reconcile with someone and it hasn't worked, don't give up. In the confrontation between the stream and the rock, the stream always wins, not because of its strength, but because of its persistence. We need to be persistent. We need to give people another chance. Some people, you know, have you ever read the five uh, forgiveness languages? You're asking for forgiveness and the person's not giving it. Maybe you're not asking it the way they receive forgiveness, the way they, they want to give forgiveness. You've got you to understand people's nuances. So go back and read that book, The Five Forgiveness Languages, then maybe try again to reconcile with that person. Maybe you're not communicating. Like for me, when I, if you come to me and say, I'm sorry, you could have cut my foot off. And you come to me like two days later and say, hey, I'm, you just, you know, I'm really sorry. Okay, you know. Some people want to hear, um, I'm sorry because I took the chainsaw you told me not to take and I was wheeling it around on a string and, uh, you know, I'll never do it again. I'm sorry. Okay, as long as I'll never do it again. You know, it's just different, it's different ways to receive, uh, people receive things, whether it's love or forgiveness. Or, so make sure that you, you continue to give that a chance, you continue to try. The goal of biblical confrontation is reconciliation. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 13, it reminds us, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Bow your heads with me, if you will, as we close here. This is tough stuff. Whether it's whether we're doing it online, you know, doing you know, communicating the wrong way online, or using using the internet to um, to try to solve things or to reconcile things, and we're not doing it in an appropriate way, or just in life, this is difficult. Asking for forgiveness confronting someone who has hurt us. These are all difficult things. And God, we just pray that if we're going to continue to have a healthy church, and we want that, Lord, but if that's going to continue to have this healthy church we call Grace Chapel and to have healthy relationships, we need to follow these biblical principles. As difficult as it may be, Father, we don't want to hide. We don't want to shy away. Because relationships are too important. Doing your work, serving you, furthering your kingdom is too important to allow these things to go on. I pray, dear God, that for each one of us, you would touch our hearts. And then next time, Lord God, that we get into a situation where we're frustrated with someone, that we have the courage to, in love, sit down with them and speak truth and try to bring about reconciliation. Teach us, Lord, how to do that. Train us to do that. 
And Father, if there are situations right now, even within the church, I don't know of any, but Lord, if there are any between individuals in the church, I pray, dear God, that in love and in truth and in grace that we would be able to talk to each other, be honest with each other, and reconcile those differences. God, we want to serve you. We want to become more like you. We want to take care of orphans and widows. We want to lead people to Christ. We want to do all the important things that you've called us to do. And we don't want Satan to have a foothold. We don't want him to to get in, Lord God, and drive a wedge between any of us. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are a family. We love each other. And Lord God, help us to strengthen one another by reaching out in love and sharing, Lord God, what's on our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. We love you so much, Lord God. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for your constant forgiveness. May that be our example in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great, great week.